All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at, at WAP, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in economic and political opportunity, health, and education. And I'm excited, I'm really excited to introduce today's speaker. I'm going to take a little longer than I usually do today. Um, sorry, yeah. Um, but Jonah Everett is a professor of political science at the University of New Brunswick. And um, she's, she's going to talk to us today about exploring viewer reactions to media coverage of female politicians, but she's She's really done important work in recent years. She's part of an internationally recognized group of scholars that um, have this team um, producing um, Canadian election studies, focusing on voter behavior in Canadian elections. And she's she's also she's a member of the Canadian Political Science Association and sat on its board of directors and task force for diversity. And she's on the editorial board of the Canadian Journal of Political Science. And she's got a number of books, including. Um, advocacy groups, the Canadian Democratic Audit, um, uh, Citizen Politics, Research and Theory, and Canadian Political. She's really an expert on um, Canadian politics, but on women in politics more broadly. And I, I just wanted to say there, there are um, a number of reasons why I was, why we're excited to have you here as a fellow, and then also to present today. But um, one connection for me is I think that um, there's one thing that I've discovered recently is a real disconnect between a lot of our studies of um, women's ascent through, you know, corporate hierarchies or other organizational hierarchies and women's ascent um, in politics. And there's a there's a lack of conversation um, between these communities. There's also a, there's also a literature on entrepreneurship that's d disconnected from the other two. And so um, we have uh, a few. Uh, speakers this year in this series who are going to help us learn more about and gain perspective on um, women's career paths um, in politics. And I'm just thrilled to have you here and to have the opportunity to learn from you. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I've attended several of these seminars over the course of the fall, and I really want to thank the Women in Public Policy Program for allowing me to be here as a research fellow this term when I'm on administrative leave. And uh, it's been really, really uh, interesting, and um, I'm sure, actually, that many of the points that I'm going to be talking about today uh, with regards to women in politics will also hold true for women in other sort of elite executive type of positions. So my work over the years, as, as Hannah was saying, has a lot to do with gender, uh, political behavior. But uh, one of my main areas of research focus has been on the topic of women politics in the media. And I started this about 11 years ago, 12 years ago or so. Uh, and I'm really pleased to see sort of the, the development of this literature that's taken place over the years as more and more women step up to take on leadership positions uh, in North America and countries around the world, we start to see more and more scholars looking at this. So um, I'm hoping to add to that conversation. Uh, some of my earlier work, which I will be mentioning a little bit here, has had an impact on that overall conversation. And um, so what I'm looking at now hopefully will sort of take things a little bit further. There is and has been an extensive literature and growing literature on women politics in the media. However, there's a much more limited uh, attempt uh, or analysis of what happens uh, to voters when they view this media coverage. And so what I'm wanting to do today is to give you a little bit of a background on that women politics in the media literature, some of the common findings that have been found, some of the stuff that my own work has found, discuss a little bit about what is out there in terms of the impact literature and then look at a particular project that I'm working on while I'm here over this term, uh, particularly looking at nonverbal communication and the impact that it has on viewers' assessments of politicians and, and women. <coughs> so, gender bias. 
we always point our fingers at the journalists and say, bad journalists, you're talking about women in a way that's different than you talk about men, for shame, for shame, for shame. Uh, but I don't actually think those journalists are going out there doing that in a deliberate sort of way. Maybe some are, but uh, most I don't think are doing so. I think what they're doing is responding to some unconscious stereotypes that we have in society about appropriate male and female uh, roles and behaviors. Not ones that we think about. I'm sure all of you have caught yourself sometimes sort of going, she shouldn't be doing, oh, why am I saying that? Why am I making those sorts of judgments when I know that I shouldn't be? Uh, I'm treating her differently than I might be treating him. So these unconscious, uh, these stereotypes and, and have a role in the way that journalists respond and um, I think that uh, affect the coverage that women receive. In the past, a lot of the, the bias that was pointed to was very blatant. Women were covered less frequently than, well, I'll talk about it in just a second. Uh, and, and it's important to note that some of those biases have declined, that the journalists uh, uh, are not as bad as they used to be, but they're still there. And I'm sure you can come up with some examples of how um, they can be biased in, uh, in their coverage. Now, I'm going to use a lot of uh, cartoons here because they tend to give good pictures and help you understand what I'm trying to say. My study is not on cartoons. One day I'd love to do a study on cartoons. I think cartoons, I think there's a real uh, project that's in there. In fact, a colleague of mine uh, did a study uh, published in French on the Canadian 1993 election, and she does a really nice analysis of political cartoons that came out of that. But the common literature looking at gender media and politics says the media tends to put undue attention on women's appearance. They highlight their ambitions as if there's something wrong with being ambitious. You know, you don't do the same for men, but it's a problem for women. They highlight their family relationships. Women in politics are frequently referred to as wife of, widow of, mother of, daughter of, even girlfriend of. And so the result of this is that there's an implicit message that they're not standing on their own. They're there because they have other people behind them. They're familial, the male family member who's there uh, giving them um, guidance or uh, leading along. And even if they're not connected to somebody, some other male family member, you can see they're being manipulated by some other, being directed by some other masculine being behind. This is a cartoon that was in Canada, actually. Uh, and you can see Cheney's directing Condoleezza Rice. Another common uh, finding in the gender media uh, literature is the, the fact that women are often presented as lacking viability, having things that are going to make it such that they're not seen as being as, as strong a candidate as uh, a male politician might be. They are, their confidence is frequently um, questioned. Their abilities are discredited. This is a, ca a cartoon of a female uh, cabinet minister in Canada. She's a law professor, was a law professor. She's been a senior cabinet minister for years, was the minister of health, and the message is she's got nothing in her hand. You know, talk about discrediting. And the result is, that women are being presented frequently as sexual beings as opposed to individuals who are capable and competent, so there's body versus brains. And I use this picture because it's Kim Campbell, whose picture's here on the wall, who's a former uh, Prime Minister of Canada. And this is a cartoon that was uh, run during the 1993 Canadian election in which the former Conservative Prime Minister is basically saying, don't worry, your opponent doesn't have the shoulders as nice as yours, you'll be fine. So a lot of, these are some of the, the common uh, things that have been found about um, the media coverage of female politicians. Not quite as blatant anymore, but still there. And you can still find discussions about cleavage, about hair, about uh, ways that uh, people are connected to other family members, these sorts of things, which had the effect of sort of limiting women's credibility and sort of emphasizing them as sort of outsiders in the political realm. 
couple other things that I have been found to be common in the media coverage of female politicians is that they tend to focus on stereotypical qualities and traits of those individuals. So that communal qualities such as, and I use these terms frequently, so communal qualities such as warmth, sociability, support of the nutrients, nurturance, these are sort of the stereotypes that we might hold about women, and those are the things that the journalists tend to pick up on. They tend less to focus on the agenic qualities of assertiveness, confidence, self-confidence, and forcefulness, qualities that we tend to stereotype men on. They also tend to be the stereotypes about politicians, so they map better on the men and they don't map as well over the women, and, and so part of the coverage that's being presented is based on these stereotypical expectations that we hold of individuals, men and women, and so they're re responding to what you'd expect to hear about a woman and what you'd not be expecting to hear. At the same time, they have uh, a tendency to stereotype them in terms of the policy fields that they are, are advocating. You know, women can campaign on all kinds of economic issues and uh, foreign affairs issues and things like that, but it's not picked up and covered as much as any things that they say about education, health, welfare, things along those lines. Stereotyping them on issues as well as uh, personality traits. So that's the traditional sort of uh, analysis of media coverage. And as I said, it's, it's changing. It's not as bad as it used to be. Um, my work has gone in a slightly different direction. I haven't looked at some of those blatant forms. I've done a lot of work with a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Gedengel, at McGill University. And Elizabeth was actually a Shorenstein Fellow here about 10 years ago. Uh, and we look at something which we call gendered mediation. And it's a much more insidious, less blatant form of media bias, but I think even more problematic because it's harder to call the media on it. And the gender mediation argument basically uh, concludes that political port reporting typically employs a masculine narrative that reinforces our conceptions of politics as a male preserve and treats the male as normative. Okay? As a result, news coverage reinforces the idea that politics is something that men do and not women. Women are outsiders. They are sort of outside the door, waiting to get in, not quite part of the old boys club that is there. Why? Why might I make this argument? Why do I conclude that politics is using a masculine narrative? Why might it be uh, framed in this particular way? Well, politics has been something that men have traditionally done. For centuries, men have been involved in politics. For decades, women have been involved in politics. It's hard to change the structures and the processes that go along with that. The political institutions, the way things are done, are all have all been set up in very masculine ways. And the example I often point to is that it's a Canadian example, it's a British example too. We, we have a parliamentary system where our speaker is, sits at the front and we have a, watch my hands as I'm talking here, we have a leader, the government side on the, the right hand side of the speaker, the opposition on the left hand side of the speaker, sort of a no man person's land in between. Uh, and the reason that that distance is the size that it is because it's two sword legs apart. Now, we're talking an institution here designed around masculine behaviors because way back when, politicians would wear their swords to, the, to uh, parliament and sometimes they got into fights and you wanted to make sure they weren't going to hurt one another. We still had those institutional structures and they have an impact on how politics is set up and, and performed. You're, very, you're like two different uh, competing armies uh, debating across the floor. So, politics is traditionally male. Journalism has been traditionally male too. You know, journalists uh, have traditionally, the political journalists have traditionally been men. Uh, journalistic culture is a much more masculine culture than not. And female journalists who are breaking, breaking into that culture have to kind of play the game, have to do as well as the guys do, perhaps be even tougher, more hard-hitting, uh, in order to be taken seriously. 
And so it, they're not changing the culture or changing the only marginally. And so overall, we have this political culture that's male, a journalistic culture is male, and so we see um, gender mediation going on in the way that news is presented. I'd also like to point to uh, a couple of ways that the gender mediation is being uh, reinforced by news values. And news values are those things that drive political story, journalistic stories, what they use to make the stories interesting. Now, journalists want their stories read, or, or they want to have their viewers watch their shows. And as a result, uh, they're doing things to capture viewer, viewer attention. What do they do? Well, they focus on new and different things. They focus on conflict, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, the things that are going to draw people's attention. And they focus on things that are unexpected. But when you uh, think about this in terms of politics, initially, the, um, the idea is that, you know, the, initially women would have been novelties. And so they got media attention, perhaps a little bit more media attention, because they were new and different. As they became, you become a little bit more um, comfortable with the idea of women in politics, familiar with the idea of women in politics, that novelty has worn off. And so they have to, in order to get coverage, you have to you know, be a little bit different. The confli conflict is a really important one, I would argue, because uh, conflict is something which the media like to, um, to cover. And so we see politics frequently <coughs> referred to as horse races, boxing matches, battles between you know, competing parties, these sorts of things. I'll talk a little bit about the metaphoric framing of politics in a minute. And um, when you see women engaging in that type of conflictual behavior, something is really is very unexpected. You know, you don't expect women to be in a boxing match. You don't expect women to be heckling across the floor. And so those things get attention. So undue attention is being placed on those unexpected, potentially more assertive you know, behaviors. And so we have argued, and our studies have shown, that um, this idea of news values results in a disproportionate um, attention to women's assertive behavior in the coverage that they receive. It's important to note here that counter-stereotypical behaviors are often viewed as being more extreme, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. So that these assertive behaviors are not just assertive, they can become downright aggressive. So women can behave in the same way as men, but they're viewed in a more extreme and in a more negative way. So, uh, that's a really important thing to note, but when women don't participate in that type of way, when they're not you know, forceful, when they're not asserting themselves onto the political stage, they're ignored because they don't fit with these other sorts of news values. So the work that I've done with Elizabeth Gadengel, a lot of it about 10, 10 years ago, uh, has done a number of things. We focus particularly on the 1993 and the 1997 Canadian elections. Canada was pretty unique at that point in time. We had a female prime minister leading one of the major parties. We had a woman leading one of the secondary parties in the 1993 election. And then we had another woman leading a secondary party in the 1997 election. So we had a number of cases where we could sort of look at high profile women who were potentially going to receive media coverage. And what we did was we looked at the debates and how they behaved in a leader's debate and then how they were covered in the media thereafter. Because it gave you an opportunity of sort of objectively measuring their behavior and then examining how the media reported on that behavior. And when we objectively measured their behavior, like you, and how, they, you know, how often they engaged in shaking their fists or pointing their fingers or interrupting one another, things that could be considered to be aggressive, um, we found that the female politicians were no more aggressive than the male politicians. In fact, they were, in some cases, much less aggressive. Um, and yet, you wouldn't have got that from the coverage of those debates. So when you saw the news clips after the debate in the next couple of days, you saw the women interrupting. 
shaking their fists, pointing the fingers, and you didn't see the men doing that. You, uh, we also looked at the overall coverage that the, the politicians received and looked at the um, verbs of reported speech. Now, you know, when you're reporting on a politician, there's an opportunity of, of interpreting what they're saying a little bit by the, the verb that you're using. A very neutral interpretation would be, you know, Kim Campbell said something, or Jean Chrétien told someone something. But if you start using more expressive verbs, all of a sudden you're conveying a manner of how they did it. And what we found was that men were reported using the more neutral verbs, and women were reported using more expressive verbs. So women were reported as accusing, warning, <coughs> insisting, boasting, challenging, daring, denying. This is the paper that Elizabeth did when she was here. Um, and what, you know, so just basically you could look at the coverage and you could see, wait a minute, there's a difference that's going on here in how these women and men are being presented in the, the overall coverage that they're receiving. We then went a step further and did an experimental study to see how those uh, verbs are, were going to be received by uh, people who would be paying attention to that coverage. And there's no doubt, but the neutral verbs were neutral, and the politicians that reported with using neutral verbs were you know, given average mean scores. But the women, because the verbs that they were reported on were much more aggressive and much more negative, or viewed much more aggressive and much more negatively, came out being evaluated much lower on an overall scale. So if you had watched the news, of course you're not going to watch every single news coverage, but even if you watched a good portion of it, you would have come away with the impression that the women were far more aggressive than the men. The final study, I, I always like to point to because it's a really interesting one. Um, Politics is, is frequently uh, framed using metaphors, as I said. Uh, battlefields, boxing matches, backstreet brawls are often you know, terms. Uh, sporting language is often used. I was reading an article today about uh, Canadian politics, and they refer to it as a, a football game. Um, and, and these events help to reinforce that sort of masculine image of politics. We don't really expect to see uh, women in a boxing match. Yes, women are making inroads into the armed forces, but still, you know, when you envision a picture of a soldier, more likely you're going to think of a, a man than a woman. Uh, sporting events, uh, violence, uh, warfare issues, you're more likely to see men than women. And so when the women are described using this metaphoric language, it emphasizes that they're out of place. And not surprisingly, the women were used, uh, reported using these more militaristic sports, violence metaphors more than the men were. So leaving the impression that they were particularly um, aggressive and assertive in what they were doing. So what are the implications of this? Well, that initial type of media coverage that I was telling you about, that sort of more blatant and obvious, uh, the underreporting of women, the negative coverage that they receive, presentation in stereotypical manners, helps to provide a message that women shouldn't be in politics, that they are political outsiders, or they don't, it's not that they shouldn't be, but they don't belong, they're outsiders. The more subtle gendered mediation coverage uh, in which you've got this narrative that's going on that makes <laughs> politics, you know, uh, uh, gives precedence to sort of a, a masculine way of doing things and uh, highlights these non-stereotypical behaviors that women might be engaged in. And we argue potentially trigger stereotypes and stereotypical responses among voters and reinforce that outsider status. So it even emphasizes it more. But it's subtle. You wouldn't know that it was there unless you started paying attention to it. It's easier to call reporting that has that first type of bias far more difficult to, to call the second type of bias. And so that's why I think it's more problematic. 
Yes, Kendall. I was just going to make a connection to that. You, you use the word non-stereotypical. I think we would typically refer to it as counter-stereotypical. So it's not that the behavior, you know, isn't stereotypical. It's, that it's actually that they're violating. You know, they're violating point. kind of a normative yeah. expectations. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm actually going to get to that here yeah, because. Very, yeah. Uh, so the issue, I think, is how do people respond? So there's a whole bunch of stuff. We've done a lot of work on looking at how the media cover. The question is, does it matter? Are people responding? That study that we looked at, looking at the verbs of reported speech, suggests that yes, people are going to respond in a different way, depending upon the language that's used to cover politicians. Um, there's a lot of stereotyping literature that's out there that says that we as voters, as citizens, use these stereotypes as heuristics to help us um, fill in blanks about political information that we don't have about, about candidates. And so when you've got an experimental study and you have a male and female candidate and the only thing that you know about them is that's different is their gender, all of a sudden we start assuming things about those people uh, based on these stereotypes. We assume that um, male politicians are going to be more agentic. They're going to have more of these leadership qualities, fit better in a sense with the politician stereotype than a female candidate who's going to have uh, we assume will have more communal stereotypes, um, nurturance and caring and, and uh, sociable and things like that. It doesn't quite hold as true in real world environments. Uh, I've done some work with Elizabeth Dengel and Susan Baducci where we've looked at, uh, we've done a meta-analysis uh, of all the experimental studies and, and um, uh, real world studies and we find that the, the real world studies don't really show up uh, in terms of the stereotyping. There's a lot more information that people have. We did a paper looking at um, the party leaders in Canada, the female party leaders in Canada, and uh, female party leaders in, in New Zealand, uh, looking back when New Zealand had two women leading uh, government and opposition parties. And we found that um, the stereotyping that was going on had more to do with uh, their party than with them as individuals, or male or female. That once you get to that level, there's an assumption that you're going to have some of those agentic qualities and characteristics. And a little bit more recent work is, is showing some of that same type of thing. At the same point in time, though, you know, we as voters don't get a lot of information about some of our candidates. Maybe if you're looking at national party leaders, but what about the local election campaigns? What about your mayoral elections or your state elections or others where there's just not a lot of information? And how are we responding to, to those individuals who are involved? So this pulls up this what we call this role incongruity theory. And stereotypes not only provide expectations about how people are behaving, but there's an, an element of prescriptiveness to them, too. We expect them to behave this way, and we kind of you know, anticipate that they will. And if they don't, something's wrong. And so we have this schema incompatibility that goes on, where we, they don't fit our expectations. And when there's this incongruent behavior, as I noted earlier, it's often viewed as being more extreme and more negative. So an assertive behavior becomes viewed as aggressive, and it's viewed more negatively. And this, I think, helps to what, explain what's going on in terms of gender deviation, why these sort of assertive behaviors are being focused on more for women, because journalists are subject to these sorts of <coughs> uh, um, factors as well as the general public. So, background on women in politics, a little bit about the impact stuff. What am I doing here in this particular paper? So the current study is looking at the links between news coverage and viewers' evaluations of politicians. There's not a lot of stuff that's out there, and so I want to sort of add to that. And I'm focusing specifically on the images that are used in political reporting, um, and not sort of what politicians say or things, but the, the little video clips that are often used behind the story. And I have a certain underlying assumptions that um, sort of have pushed me to do this. First, 
the argument is that most politicians run in low-profile elections. You know, not many women are running for president of the United States. Uh, and so, you know, what happens to all those other women who are running? Low-profile state, provincial uh, elections, uh, media coverage at these levels is more limited than at national levels. Now, I know the situation in the U.S. is different, and a lot of money is spent on election campaigns in the U.S. In Canada, there's not. Uh, and if you are, I did a study looking at um, women in the uh, maritime provinces, so New Brunswick, P Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia, um, and uh, how frequently they were referred to in, mentioned in newspapers. I don't usually use newspapers, I usually use television because I think it more, has more of an impact, but this was a newspaper study. On average, they were referred to three times throughout a provincial election campaign. Three times they got coverage. And uh, uh, the party leaders, a lot more. We have a couple of women who are leading parties, but that's not very much. And, that, and, and one of those times is the candidate profile, you know, where everyone, everyone got that. So uh, the long and the short of it is, often at that level, you don't get a lot of media coverage. And the other thing is, is that even when you do, the actual voice of the individual politician is getting less and less. They speak less. Uh, at one point in time, a journalist would report a whole speech. And now you're lucky if you get a 15-second clip. Uh, sometimes you'll get a story, but often you're not even speaking in the story. Voters typically have a low level of candidate awareness. Uh, you know, again, I'm pretty sure the situation is here, the same here as it is in Canada, where most people aren't really that attentive to what's going on in politics, particularly if the election's a little bit away. Uh, and stereotypes are most likely to occur in low information environments. So you have little information, and you're given little information, and that's when people tend to rely on their stereotypes. And finally, the gender mediation argument suggests that female politicians' news coverage is most likely to portray them behaving in non-stereotypical, often assertive manners. So if they do get a clip, chances are it's going to show them doing something that uh, in the, is, it behaves, it demonstrates them behaving in this sort of counter-stereotypical way. What happens? That's the interest. So we're focusing on visuals. Why visuals? Well, people tend to recall images better than um, verbal information. That's why I had all those political cartoons up there, because they were to leave an impression. Uh, and visual cues can have very profound, uh, although sometimes very unconscious, impact on how we respond to politicians. Um, and there's been a lot of work that's done on this. And it doesn't take much. It just takes a short little clip to get an uh, impression of somebody and how they, uh, who they are and what they might represent. So this study is looking at how different forms of nonverbal behavior might be viewed. We're using short video clips. No audio, so it's just the visuals. The idea is it's kind of the, the, uh, the lip flaps that are you know, there when the, the journalist is talking over and you just see the politician in the background giving a speech or talking to their, uh, their supporters or something like that. And I'm looking particular at hand gestures. And hand gestures, I think, are really important because of all the var various verbal cues, and it's hard to sort of distinguish them, but there are a lot of verbal cues that we give out, smiling and nodding your head and, and moving around, the way you hold yourself, things like that. But hand gestures actually are one of the most important verbal cues. They catch your attention, and uh, they sort of z you zero in, especially in a short period of time, on uh, those gestures in terms of your assessments. So we're looking at three different types of body languages coming out here. One is a constrained, where the politician is speaking and not moving their hands and giving their presentation you know, in a much more constrained manner. One is using sort of rhythmic gestures, hands to the side, horizontal, because there's some evidence that that uh, creates a, a different impression than the vertical hand gestures. And one could argue that a vertical hand gesture is a little bit more assertive, a little bit more aggressive, 
uh, and they're called baton movements. Uh, whereas this is a little bit more open and encompassing, and then this is obviously you know, uh, giving out different messages. So we're testing to see what happens. And my argument would be, and we haven't done this study, but my argument would be that if you looked at the coverage, the clips that are used, they're probably more likely to see uh, female politicians using a baton movement, you know, being, you know, um, putting emphasis on something. And I say this as I stand here and I talk like this and I talk like this and I know I should be talking like this. Um, but anyways, uh, the, uh, it, we are, I would argue that you're probably more likely to see the vertical movements in the coverage than not. So we did this experimental study uh, with students from the University of New Brunswick in St. John. We had 96 undergraduate students. Um, we did a preliminary study in the summertime and our results were slightly different, but we, we changed the format and, and changed our analysis. And so we ended up running a whole new batch of experiments. And uh, it was only a week and a half ago. So this is really hot off the, the uh, computer uh, data. Uh, we had 27, or sorry, 70 females and 26 male participants because it was an intro psych class. And we're going to try and add to that, um, that sample size by just specifically targeting some male students to try and, and have a better gender balance. And we're not really doing any uh, analysis of viewers and how, you know, the, male or the gender of the viewer in this. It's just on how the viewers respond to, pol to the politicians. We end up using real world politicians. And one of the challenges of doing this type of study is that you, um, what do you use? What sort of media coverage are you using? Uh, some people, uh, there's a, a group of colleagues, actually my, co my friend Elizabeth, get angle is involved in that group from McGill University who are doing similar sort of work uh, in terms of voter responses. Uh, and they actually hired, hired actors to act out uh, the, the statements and, and give short presentations. We went a different route. We went with real world politicians. Um, a, last winter, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada, which had been a major party, didn't do so well in the 2011 election, dropped down to third party status and was kind of off the radar. It had a leadership convention. And in that leadership convention, there were five male candidates and four female candidates campaigning for a leader of that party. And uh, they held these debates, uh, televised debates. Uh, and by the end of the convention, or the, the campaign, Several of the candidates had dropped out, but we're not interested in who won or lost. We were interested in having a source of data where we had real men and women who were interested in running for politics, presenting themselves, uh, giving uh, statements, and engaged in debates. And so we used short clips from their presentations, and we ended up with three male and three female leadership candidates. They were all typical, uh, middle-aged, but between about you know 48 and, and uh, 65, white. Uh, two of them were francophone, but we're using, um, one didn't had an accent, the other one didn't have an accent, but we're not actually using the audio, so it doesn't really matter. And one of the clips is of, the, of a politician uh, who is uh, speaking in French, but you wouldn't probably know just by looking at the clip. So we chose three 26-second uh, clips from each of these <coughs> politicians, demonstrating each of these behavior. So for each of these six politicians, we have a clip of them not moving their hands, we have a clip of them using sort of horizontal rhythmic gestures, and another one where the majority of their gestures are much more vertical emphasis making. We, yes? Just a clarification question. Is, does, is there research on, you know, the, you were talking about the implications of horizontal versus vertical gestures. This is sort of completely independent of audio context. Mm -hmm. Does the audio context not matter um, in important ways in sort of how those gestures are interpreted? Yes. It does, uh, but I wasn't interested in that because I'm assuming that those audio is not going to be there in the type of, of coverage that I'm looking at. 
right? I'm assuming that most of the coverage that people are going to receive are just these voiceovers, and so it's just the video that's really important. But you're right, um, it does some, some gestures when they emphasize what's being said have a different, uh, are, are received in different ways than they're just sort of, you know, making, uh, shaking their hands around. So yes, there's a, a literature that's out there on that. So we set it up by having um, a series of different uh, video clips. Uh, they were randomly mixed up. We had, uh, so that they weren't all, uh, all of our participants weren't seeing them in the same order. Uh, but all of the, the participants would see all six candidates at least once, at only one time using a different uh, hand gesture. Uh, so what would happen is we'd show them the 20-second clip. We gave them a um, questionnaire which contained a number of different uh, traits and, and issue strengths and things like this, uh, including all the ones that you see on the screen here. We asked them to evaluate these politicians on a Likert scale where one met, uh, so for example, if tough was the issue, one would be soft and five would be tough. Or decisive, one would be indecisive and five would be decisive. And uh, so we had got them to, for each of these candidates after each video clip, had them assess them, then showed them the next candidate, had them assess, showed them the next candidate, had them assess. We then ended up making composite scales for our agentic traits and our communal traits, and they both uh, were quite strong in terms of uh, the uh, um, reliability of those scales. As you might imagine, they, they, those um, traits fit together quite nicely. So, what are we looking for here? Well, our first uh, argument had to do about stereotyping and our assumptions around gender stereotyping. So we had a couple of hypotheses looking at that. The first was that under all the conditions, didn't matter which type of behavior they were engaged in, male candidates would be ranked higher than female candidates on the more agentic characteristics of being a strong leader, being aggressive, tough, decisive, and confident. At the same time, under all conditions, we thought that female candidates would be ranked more highly than male candidates in all the communal traits of caring, sociable, emotional, family-oriented, and sensitive. They only got 20 seconds. They didn't have a lot of time to make an assessment. So they're gonna draw on some of those stereotypes, we assume. Then we start looking at, okay, what happens when we throw the gestures in? Does it make a difference? And we argue that in both cases, we would expect that uh, those candidates who were using the more expansive gestures, the, the hand movements horizontally or vertically, um, are more likely to, to be perceived as being agentic than those using the more controlled behaviors. Men tend to be more expressive, take up more space, and, and assert themselves into an environment more than women. Those are more stereotypically male behaviors. Uh, and they, that they do convey a certain degree of assertiveness in, in some ways. And you might expect that someone who's a little bit more controlled and might be a little bit more nervous and, and hesitant and less likely to uh, be perceived as being strong. That's kind of you know, the stereotyping that we would expect. So that's our third expectation uh, that we go into the study with. Uh, so the um, more expansive behaviors are likely to lead to more agentic evaluations. Then we test the role congruity argument, that when you fit with your role, you, you're rewarded for it. So hypothesis four suggests that male candidates demonstrating expansive behaviors will be ranked higher than female candidates demonstrating similar behaviors. Those expansive behaviors are male, more likely to see them as being appropriate for men, fits with their the ex expectations, and therefore they will be evaluated positively. Women, on the other hand, are behaving in an counter stereotypical way and therefore might be perceived in a more negative manner and ranked lower. On the other hand, when you take a look at the communal characteristics and traits, uh, the stereotyping would go in the opposite direction. Expectations. Then we had the role incongruity argument. And this is that, and 
I'm a political scientist, and we all want to know who people are going to vote for. So this is where it doesn't really matter. Not only does it make a difference in terms of how we see these politicians, but does it matter in terms of whether we're likely, more or less likely to vote for them. So we also had a measure in our scale, which was 1 to 10, how likely are you to vote for this candidate? And uh, we would argue the hypothesis is that respondents are more likely to vote for male candidates who demonstrate the expansive behaviors than male candidates who don't. Likewise, uh, the incongruity argument is that uh, respondents are less likely to vote for female candidates who demonstrate those expansive behaviors than those who don't. <laughs> Maybe you have already mentioned this, but I don't think I've heard it yet. Uh, these were real politicians. Real politicians? Yeah. And are they known? No, oh, so you're right. And I yeah. didn't mention that. And that was a good point. I meant to say that. Um, it was a really low profile yeah. election, you know, a leadership convention. Hardly anyone paid attention to it. Uh, the guy who ended up winning actually. Uh, is doing quite well right now, but we didn't include him because he was actually the only candidate that people really knew. Okay. Uh, so and so, so they didn't, the, yeah, they the chances didn't of our undergrad, first-year undergraduate students knowing who these people were, no. Did you actually ask them? No, we didn't. But I can assure you I've taught <laughs> even inter-Canadian politics classes and the level of knowledge is very, very low. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm not too concerned about uh, being aware of who these individuals were. Good point. Uh, final hypothesis, uh, respondents are more likely to vote for male candidates who demonstrate expansive behaviors than female candidates who demonstrate the same behavior. So this is that, does that gender mediation uh, make a difference? Or are men going to benefit from it? Or are women going to be penalized from it? So what do we find? To start off, I should note that we uh, had these six candidates. We did a sort of a, had a likability measure. And there really weren't any differences between the candidates, between the male candidates, the female candidates, and all the different judges. So what we ended up doing is sort of putting together a composite measure for all the male candidates and all the female candidates, rather than looking at individual responses to them. Um, in terms of our first hypothesis, that men would be perceived as stronger on the agentic traits, that was partially con uh, uh, confirmed. Um, but it only worked for strong uh, leader and tough. On the other agentic traits, there was really no statistical difference. And we put them together in a scale. Uh, that scale uh, didn't show up as being statistically significant either uh, in terms of uh, male or female candidates. So I think that's an interesting point, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. You don't see these stereotyping, the stereotyping going on on the agentic traits uh, when you, before you start looking at some of the other stuff. Um, just knowing that someone's a male doesn't mean you're going to assume he's going to be stronger at some of these things than, than for the women. I should note, though, that the mean scores were in the direct, uh, direction we would expect. So they weren't statistically significant, but the pattern was there. Yeah. Can you just remind us what your other attributes were? Yeah, they were um, tough, decisive, confident, strong leader, and aggressive for the, the agentic, and emotional, family-oriented, sociable, caring, and sensitive for the communal. Uh, hypothesis two, that female candidates would be perceived as stronger in the communal traits, again, partially confirmed, only in terms of emotional, family-oriented, and sociable. So uh, caring and sensitive didn't show up as being statistically significant. And this scale did prove uh, to be, uh, have differences when they were applied to men and women, but only at the point one level. So you know, not a really strong, yeah. Yeah, just, um, I know you didn't have a lot of Signs of meaningful differences in the evaluation? 
Haven't looked at it yet. I told you I got the data. Actually, I got the data on Monday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I had the paper written, you know, for a conference uh, back in the beginning of September. So I kind of knew what I was expecting to come up, but because it was a new set of participants, uh, you know, things appeared in the same way, but I haven't had a chance of really looking at those things. But I will look at that, you can be sure. Yeah, I think that's yes, uh, based on other studies, I would expect that men are more likely to uh, see men as being agentic and women are more likely to see uh, and there'll be fewer differences between, so on a scale, well this way, agentic would be men viewing men, uh, men viewing women, or sorry, women viewing men, women viewing women, and men viewing women, in that kind of order. I've done that with some other stuff, but I haven't done it with this one yet, but that's my expectation. Yes? Same question. Okay. Uh, all right. Hypothesis three, uh, that expansive behaviors lead to more agentic assessments. Well, that's kind of complex, and I'll show you when we look at number four. But what we found was that these rhythmic behaviors, the horizontal gestures, uh, ranked below either the baton or the non-movement. Why? Everybody. For every, well, in that, yeah, when we looked at everybody. Why? Because when you throw gender in there, everything gets all mixed up. So the argument that there's gonna be some impact of these gestures and gender of the candidate is actually confirmed. Men were more agentic than women when they be engaged in these expansive behaviors, the baton behavior, not the rhythmic one. They were less communal than women when they were engaged in those behaviors. And here are some tables to take a look at. So, hope you can see. Uh, this line here is the baton gesture. So this is with the agentic traits. So when men are, are viewed using a baton gesture, they're viewed quite highly. Women are viewed quite negatively. It's their lowest evaluation important to know. But look at here. Women who are using the sort of neutral gesture, men doesn't have an effect on rhythmic or neutral, but women demonstrated, you know, presented using the neutral gesture, not making any hand movements, are viewed much more positively in terms of those leadership traits. That's why I got a problem with my hands. <laughs> in, in terms of the communal traits, as I said, it holds true. But it holds true because men are not you know, viewed communally whether they use any type of gesture or not. It doesn't really matter. And in fact, you know, this is not significant, these differences. So women are just viewed as being more communal and men less communal. How they behave and the, gender, the gestures that they use doesn't really make a difference. Okay? So it happens, it has an effect on those agentic traits. Those leadership traits, those traits that we expect uh, to see in a politician. Uh, that's where you actually start to see you know, some, some differences in terms of how people present themselves or are being presented. Um, you touch, if you could look back to the last slide. Certainly. You had touched um, upon what level. It would be really interesting. Did you give them... Sorry, what do you mean what level? What level the politician was? Oh, yes. It would be really interesting to see if one could run... Um, a similar study at a local level or something? Because they knew that these were leadership candidates, uh, but they didn't, but it would be interesting to know if it was, it mattered if it was a state or municipal type of. That's almost really concerning. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, there, I mean, there is a concern about that, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Later, because I'm doing some work on LGBT politicians as well. Yeah. And um, you noticed a significant difference between 
in terms of what? Well, in terms of what's acceptable and isn't and then it's behavior. So right. yeah. in, in the way they're perceived. So I think it's really interesting because where she wants them to stay is to make deals that mm -hmm. she wants executives to enforce them, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it presents a very different context. So crowding all the women together is if the candidate the actual candidates together in a pool actually may Well, and as I said, the, the, the participants knew that these were candidates for party yes, leadership. So it would be at that elite level. This was, these people could potentially have been prime minister of Canada. Uh, and so that's, they were making assessments based on that. But there's no doubt that there's the literature out there about sort of, you know, women having broken into the local and, and state levels earlier than men because it's, you know, all kinds of reasons for it. Um, but I think that uh, this is interesting because if you're looking at even that high level, there's some real potential problems that are here. Okay, so what's the impact on the vote? Well, first let me say that there's no statistically significant differences between how these respondents would have voted it, depending for these candidates. It, whether the candidate was male or female, it didn't really matter. They were, they were gonna vote for them pretty much the same. There, there appears to be a slight difference here in terms of the mean scores of likelihood of voting, but that didn't show up as being statistically significant. And women, if they were different, uh, statistically significant, would have come out ahead. So it's not like you know people are biased against the, the female candidate, but really you, we can't sort of assume that there's any differences going on here. I think the statement that we sort of gave at the beginning was that we're doing a study to look at how uh, people respond to media coverage and the evaluations that they make about political candidates, uh, and we're going to show you a series of clips of leadership candidates. Uh, so there's a they knew to some extent what was going on. Um, they they weren't aware of the fact that the gestures were part of it. So that was really sort of uh, not uh, part of the, the messaging. And I'm not sure that actually if you had viewed the clips, you'd pick up specifically on that because in each of the different batteries of of, um, of uh, video clips that we used, there were two who were non uh, not moving, two that were moving, using rhythmic, and two that were using baton gestures. And as I said, we had three different orders and we switched them around from, from one group to the next. Okay, uh, in terms of the correlation between vote and gesture, uh, hypothesis five, are uh, suspected that respondents were more likely to vote for male candidates who demonstrate the expansive behaviors than male candidates who do not. It was not confirmed. Uh, we have a, this is a correlation score. It was 0 .096, not very high, and not statistically significant. So therefore, didn't matter for people, whether they're gonna vote for that man or not, depending on the gestures, even though baton gestures made him appear to be more, um, in our earlier studies, made him appear to be more agentic. Uh, when we take a look at our next hypothesis, that they were less likely to vote for female candidates who demonstrated the expansive behaviors than those who did not, that hypothesis is confirmed. Uh, women who are shown demonstrated, demonstrated using those baton gestures, with more expansive, expressive gestures, were viewed or were less likely to be voted for. Now, negative 0 0.208 and statistically significant. Not a nice score. Um, 
When we look at the correlations between vote, gender, and gesture, uh, and the argument is that uh, respondents who are more, likely to, are more likely to vote for male candidates to demonstrate expansive behaviors than the female candidates to demonstrate the same behaviors, that is confirmed. So if you take a look at this study, and you see here, so you can see sort of the behavior. It's a neutral, rhythmic, which is a little less you know, uh, assertive, and then the baton, which is more assertive, hence our sort of ordering going on here. Male candidates uh, who are shown using baton have higher mean scores in terms of likelihood of voting. Female candidates showing the baton are low. This is interesting. That's why I won't be a politician. Um, <laughs> male candidates, really, this difference is not that great, but it, you know, it is noticeable. It is statistically significant. But for women, this is you know, interesting. For a woman who is not shown using those expansive gestures, she's more likely to be voted for. So there's a message that's there. Uh, and so then what we did was we threw it into a regression equation just to see you know, if other things are going on here. And in fact, the gesture does sort of wash out. But I argue it washes out because these become particularly important. So those gestures are not as important, are not important because they're important in terms of how the stereotypes develop. And those stereotypes are then the ones that lead us to be more or less likely to vote for particular candidates. So in terms of the... Uh, likelihood of voting for men, agentic traits don't really matter. We're kind of assuming that they're going to be agentic. And it's the positive communal traits that are going to make a difference, the ones where they're getting a bit of a benefit from, you know, if you assume that they're going to be more communal than not. In terms of voting for women, agentic traits really make a difference. And if you recall, those agentic traits are most likely to appear when the women are not using hand gestures, and least likely to appear when they're shown using a more expansive Communal traits are important, but not, they're not as important for women as they are for men. Okay? So I think those are important things to, to note uh, from this study. So to conclude, um, our concerns about the, how the media portray female politicians are valid. Uh, politicians are used, shown using more expressive behaviors uh, are penalized in the, women politicians are penalized in voters. Uh, assessments of them. <coughs> different gestures provoke different responses and those more sort of assertive gestures are likely to be viewed more negatively for women um, and than they are for men. Good point. This is someone asked me at the beginning, is it all going to be bad news? No, no, the good news is women, male politicians are not necessarily assumed to be, have uh, more agentic traits linked to female politicians than, or linked to sort of politicians uh, stereotypes than female politicians and possibly because high level of political office, there's an assumption perhaps that women who are at the stage that they're competing for that level are going to be assumed to have these qualities. But it's important to remember that how they're portrayed has an effect on how we interpret those qualities. So men who use baton gestures are more likely to be seen as agentic. Women who don't uh, are going to be, uh, who, don't, who refrain from making gestures are more likely to be seen as being agentic, having those leadership abilities. Women under all conditions are going to be viewed as more communal than men and gesture has little impact on that one. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Black screen. Okay, uh, getting close to the end here. Uh, gestures do have an impact on our likelihood of voting for a candidate, but it's, it's filtered through our, the stereotypes that are revoked. So uh, evaluations of agentic traits are more important for female candidates, and those are influenced by gestures, as I said. Evaluation of communal traits are more important for male candidates, but gestures don't make a difference. So in other words, the video coverage matters for women, but not so much for men. So. To tie it all back to that gender media politics literature, the choice of clips, the role that journalists play in choosing what to portray is really important. 
And given the fact that we've got lots of evidence that they tend to show women using or behaving in these non-counter or these counter-stereotypical manners, uh, the impact of media coverage is likely to be relatively negative. And so there is some evidence that gender mediation uh, is likely to have an effect on women's political success. So there's some more information if you want. I've got uh, some of my pa earlier papers are located there at the McGill uh, website, and uh, this one will be available once I have a chance of finishing it. Yes? Yes. Even worse. Yeah, the, the, I, I'm not a big fan of experimental studies, but when you're looking at things like gender stereotypes, these are the students you're going to expect them to be less prevalent among. These are the individuals, right? And the voting public, it's going to be even worse. It's going to even be, the differences are going to be even greater out there because uh, older, more uh, stereotypes are more embedded in their experiences, uh, and, and they lower educated population, and stereotypes are less likely to be prevalent among educated population. So all these things that sort of, um, you know, have potential problems uh, are, are going to be even worse in the, you know, greater in the voting public. Yeah, Victoria. You know, I think it would be really interesting to take the same study and see if you could replicate it in a society where we've had a strong female leader tied to highly agentic qualities, such as in Germany with Merkel, mm -hmm. and to see if the example of a strong female leader who might be known for using these types of gestures acts as a social vaccine. Yeah, it would be interesting. Although, it, to be honest, um, I go back to that other experimental study that I did, uh, the, the verbs of reported speech. Yeah. And uh, that was done in, like we actually gathered the data in the late 1990s, and most of the students were from my university in St. John. And so we're talking about sort of stereotyping of politicians, and I had a, a male research assistant who was inputting the data said to me one day, and we were having a male mayoral election, and he said to me, you know, It'll be really strange to have a male. I can't a mayor who's a man. And I'm thinking what? And then I stopped myself and thought to myself, I was in a city where the mayor was a woman, the local uh, candidate for, or not the local, the, the local uh, provincial member was a woman, a party leader, and the uh, federal party member was a party leader. So the students that were coming in my university in that particular study, because most of the university students in my school come from the local area. We're very familiar with women in political roles, and they still had these stereotypes that were coming up. So I do think it's right. I think it would be really interesting. But I think the issue is not certain individuals. It's a broader societal challenge that we face. That we, this is not just having one person in that role who's going to portray themselves differently and have us change our minds. These are deeply rooted you know, expectations about appropriate male and female behaviors that we get as children. You know, and you see how little boys and little girls are trained to behave. And, you know, boys are, it's okay if you go out and fight, and little girls, it's not okay. And uh, that's a hard thing to break away from. As I said, I, even myself, I've caught my, and who's done all this work, have caught myself looking at a leader's debate and going, oh, she was awfully you know, <laughs> aggressive in that, wasn't she? No, I shouldn't be saying that. Um, and because it, we have these sort of gut responses. And, and I think what I, my goal is, to try and make people aware of those gut responses and then get over them. And in fact, actually, one of the, recent, one of the projects I want to do is to sort of measure what people say and then, you know, because I think we do get over things and sometimes, you know, the, the, how they respond might be muted. I'd like to do some sort of physical response types of studies where you can actually see physical responses of how people respond versus how they respond sort of verbally. Someday. Yes? Uh, last week, uh, the IOC 
being gender biased in the family. It's very interesting, and I don't know if oh, there were other people in this room who were there. Uh, one of the interesting things about it, Christine Quinn was one of our candidates, um, and so I was particularly interested to see the film and hear how they thought about this. Um, but interestingly enough, they wanted to talk about their own head, not the film. So it was um, about whether or not they were stereotyping her in their coverage, which was fascinating to hear them reflect on it. It was men and women, ages from 50s to 30. Uh, and what they said was they knew at some point that the coverage had been biased, but they couldn't figure out where, what it was. And this is a very interesting point about your unconscious bias, because they knew by the time they finished the film that they felt differently about her than the coverage that the New York Times had done about her, mm -hmm. had suggested. And so they couldn't figure out what the differences were. One particular example they gave, which I think is really interesting, is that um, they wanted to open the trailer with a picture of her in a makeup chair being made up. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they made the trailer, and when they looked at it, they had this sense there was something wrong, but they didn't know what it was. So they brought the whole editorial staff of the New York Times in to see the trailer and to decide whether or not it was gender biased. And they took a vote, and the vote was completely down the middle, split. But they still weren't comfortable with it, so they decided not to use it. And they were asking the question, were they right or were they wrong? And it was really phenomenal because they couldn't figure it out. I mean, they actually knew in their heart there was something wrong with this, but they didn't know whether it was gender bias. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a really telling comment because, I, as I said, I don't think these are, you know, conscious decisions that are being made. No, they're being driven by... Yeah, all kinds of different factors. I um, did some research with a, a former graduate student of mine. He actually did a master's uh, um, thesis. And we looked at um, Alison Brewer, who is uh, the leader of the New Democratic Party in New Brunswick in 2007. She's a lesbian. She was the first lesbian party leader in Canada. And he had been a journalist, and he was coming back, and he was looking at the media coverage of her. And uh, when he actually defended his thesis, he, said, he started off by saying, you know, when I was a journalist, I'd be saying this and not even thinking twice about it because it was good, it was news, it was going to grab people's attention. And now I'm horrified, you know, because having sort of gone into this and looking at the implications and what it means and, and how, in fact, it does change how people are going to respond to <coughs> these individuals, how it is differing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't treat sort of a, you know, male candidate or a, a, a straight candidate in that particular way. Why are we doing it for, for this lesbian woman? So it, it is an interesting sort of factor. Yeah. yeah um, two questions. One really small one, and then a The real small one was when you showed us that table of coefficients. The one thing that you didn't clarify is whether the differences across genders were significant or not, or whether you can't say because of this small n. We're talking about relative no importance. Well, whether the uh, agentic, you know, print that one. You just passed it. Oh, the road. Yeah, that, that one. Whether okay. the left-hand column, the right-hand column, are 0.421.216. Methodologically, that's a tough thing to be saying because these are uh, 
the vote likelihood of voting were created into male scales and female scales, and so I haven't looked at them overall. I can't tell you that at the mo at this stage of the game. Also, because you want to be able to say that genome traits matter more here than there. Yeah, are. you just run a, an interaction of it, just combine yeah, it, run an interaction by gender times communal traits on. Yeah, I just haven't, I haven't done yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so that was just, so the, the bigger point, uh, bigger question I have just in general, it seems like everything you've been saying leads me to think that you would not expect to see students differ particularly from the general population. You would not expect people in a country with Merkel as prime minister to differ particularly from people without Merkel as prime minister, because these are things that are inculcated in early childhood, they're sort of imbued in the culture, and cultural change is uh, painfully slow and gradual, and moreover, showing the whole world this result probably wouldn't change very much either. But the one thing that, I, that you haven't really talked about, which I, I'd assumed was gonna be your takeaway point, is you chose the journalists. <laughs> and you could say, you should, instead of just unconsciously, because probably a lot of this is unconscious selection, even if it isn't, you know, it's unconscious bias based on newsworthiness criteria. I don't know why I think this is more newsworthy, but I do. Um, you can probably override that and have an effect there uh, on sort of the impact of media reports of campaigns on viewers in that way. So um, I don't know if that was part of the plan, but I was just curious, you know, if, if it is, because it seems like that was the takeaway point I was expecting. That's the takeaway point to, to get. The, uh, but I, so are you saying, am I going to take this to journalists and Well, no, I, this, well I was saying that, you know, the thing that you could do with this kind of research that seems to me could actually change political outcomes is that. Yes, yes. Okay. And in fact, some of my earlier work has been used in journalism schools, you know, and people, you know, have used it to talk about, you know, gender and, and how you cover female candidates and you know, some of the, the earlier stuff. Uh, so it does have implications. I think that, that, that you're right on that one. But do you disagree with me about the students versus general population? Uh, no, I don't disagree with you. I, I do think that there, there the, the differences might be smaller, slightly smaller among younger people because there, there has been a, a societal change. But I think it's still going to be there because I don't think it's, we've changed that much. And I do think that among older generations, the differences are going to be larger because we, you know, they've grown up in periods where you haven't had the same sort of degree of gender equality. Um, but yeah, they're still there. So one country to another, it all depends. I mean, there will be cultural differences from one country to another, depending, you know, you take a look at a country that has a higher gender equality and it's going to be, the results are going to be different than in a country that has, you know, much lower gender equality. But Canada has a pretty high level of gender equality, except for when it comes to politics. But, uh, you know, other than that, if it weren't for our politicians, we'd be pretty high on the equality status, and you still have these sorts of things showing up. So. Yes? Um, I just wonder, I just want to go back to the example again, in terms of whether a group of students from New Brunswick is really representative of what you would find in other provinces across Canada. We are a pretty diverse country, and I, I think in Alberta, for example, where you just had two women yep. leading the race, and one of them was going to become premier. Um, It'd be interesting, first of all, to see if, if the media portrayed them differently or used different words in terms of the discussion, but also then the socialization of students in that province or in Sioux or, or Ontario where they think of you know, sure. premier or Quebec, especially. I, I think it'd be when different. What I would say is my university has changed dramatically since that earlier study. Uh, we now actually have a really high level of international students uh, in, our, in our campus. 
Uh, now they're not taking intro psych to the same degree as uh, you know the, the domestic students, but uh, it is a it's a less um, homogeneous group. And in fact, uh, I haven't got my numbers here, but we had you know probably about 15% of the population had some uh, a mother tongue other than English. Now they obviously could uh, you know understand what was going on. They're university students, but uh, it represents a, a, a different group than we had previously. Having said that, I agree wholeheartedly with you that. Um, you know, what you'd find perhaps in a population in downtown Toronto or in British Columbia might be different and the overall context uh, of, a, of a political environment, political culture might be different. Alberta, you know, despite the fact that they've got uh, women leading political parties in Alberta, it's a pretty conservative problem, so I'm not sure I would actually go there. <laughs> um, but New Brunswick is pretty conservative too, so yeah, there's, so, there's something to be said for that, I think. I think what would be interesting would be Ontario, actually, where you've got uh, um, women who have led parties, or Quebec, uh, where, which would be a different situation completely. Yeah. So a couple of reactions. I mean, one, I, I, I think I think these things are pretty immutable. I'm like, and you know, another issue with the okay, so a couple of quick comments I can't. But the, the college students are that's pretty androgynous stage of life. Also, mm -hmm. I mean, that's another issue that I think that tends to make gender less salient. For, or, or more salient for older people than for younger people. So I tend to agree with you. I think you'd get more, you might get stronger results. I think maybe more interesting than doing something cross-sectional or looking at countries where there are women or provinces where there are women in leadership, might be interesting to like prime them with exposure to predominantly male leaders or prime them with exposure to predominantly female leaders and see whether or not that exposure would help I do think there's a degree to which these things aren't, they aren't totally immutable. Like there, there is some, I think there, I think context makes a difference. A lot of these implicit stereotypes that we walk around with are kind of a reflection of how we're perceiving society. Mm -hmm. So you may be able to manipulate that. But, yeah, but, but I, I'm, I, I would encourage you to, to reach out because, sorry, can I throw, yeah, sure. throw out one more? Maybe you can respond to both. I am totally, I would really encourage you to reach out not to, not because I don't believe your results, because I'm dumbfounded by this and pained by this idea of um, women getting smaller, um, making them appeal appear more judgy. Because there's just so much research showing that being small is a low. I mean, cross species research showing that being small is a low power move, and that it no, actually has psychological effects on one's no, experience so much of power. Small. I, I think it has. It's more to do with not being as expansive. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, just sort of being contained, but, you know, um, you know. But not in control, control. Yeah. 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 But, but what's the opposite of expansive? I mean, that's yeah. what, I mean, that's how you make yeah. yourself appear. I mean, yeah, across no, species, more powerful is you, you're, yeah. you, you're more expansive. So, I mean, but that, but I'm, that's fascinating if that's like a gender violation for women, because there's so, I mean, if it really, if you need to show, if, if, if being expansive appears for women, for instance, out of control, kind of like anger, right? Yeah. So if men are angry, it's sort of a high power move, but women are angry, they're out of control. Right. Mm. And so it'd be very interesting to see whether expansiveness somehow creates, you know, we have this general notion that expansiveness heightens power perceptions, you know, whether or not there's something there where it's where it gets interpreted differently for women or something. I mean, it's just, that's like whether being in control is a sign of power for women because we know women aren't in control. I mean, there's, there's both gesture, but there's also pace. And I've read that <coughs> people who are s stiller are perceived as more powerful. So oh, that's interesting. Control yeah, of motion and control of, well, if you're more still, you're often perceived as more powerful. 
but yeah, and that's if you watch if you watch a debate, you'll often see that in the end, the person who didn't wave their arms as much at all, who seemed more centered, mm -hmm. tends to be perceived yeah. as more successful. So maybe there's two axes. And pace of speech is something else also that's used <coughs> to ex to describe why women appear less powerful in their self presentations. Anyways, that, that that this idea of constraint as a demonstration of power, I just think is really cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, not right. It's not good for the world, but it's very fascinating. Yeah. And the results might also vary by what the social norm is around constraint. I mean, one of the things I was thinking as you were describing it is, I think of Canadians as more polite than Americans, right? Because mm -hmm. um, that's a stereotype. Stereotype, right? <laughs> and thinking about how would this play in New York City, right? Yeah. Or Israel versus Tennessee or Kentucky. One of the things that women really find when running for office in the United States is the regional differences can be very significant in what is appropriate for women and how women display power yeah. and what it should look like. And thinking about um, what can we learn from your study that can be applied, and how do we apply it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's true. That, that cultural context is going to play a role, but there's still you've got those stereotypes. And, and right. so the issue is gender stereotypes, right. power stereotypes, right. and the fact that power stereotypes map better onto masculine right. stereotypes as opposed to feminine stereotypes. Right. So when you, the, that role in congruity is when you see women behaving in right. a powerful way, right. I would say, you know, it's still going to be a problem. Whether you're right. in New York City or you know someplace else, um. but but it could be moderated. Sorry to jump in. I'm just yeah, excited no, exactly. about the idea. <laughs> but um, you know, it could be moderated. Like we've got a lot of evidence of um, Democratic Party party moderating gender perceptions here in the U.S. Now it doesn't go. I'm, I'm sort of imagining St. John's pretty liberal place, certainly compared to our. Yeah. I don't know. Well, well compared yeah. to our by yeah, our politics. So yes. so what I'm going to say wouldn't necessarily would we actually would argue for your results being more conservative. But for instance, like there, we had a really interesting speaker last year present results showing that women actually with um, more feminine facial structure, right. actually that, that feminine facial structure is a predictor of assent in the Republican Party yeah. um, here in the United States. Well, whereas, yeah, and that there's a lot of, right, and it fits with <laughs> other research showing that this sort of gender complementarity is more important for women's self-presentation in, in Republican context than in democratic. And so you might imagine that being small for women or less expressive would be even more important in cultural contexts, ideological contexts, where gender complementarity is more highly valued. And actually, um, one of the measures, we did a, a, a pre-questionnaire as well, uh, asking about various sort of uh, political responses to various things. We wanted to get a, a test of you know, where they fell ideologically, but also several questions that were related to gender equality. And I haven't fit that one in. Oh, I think that'll be really yeah, interesting into really that regression to see how that sort of plays out and whether or not it makes a difference. Yeah. But again, haven't really got that far on some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, someone back here, yes. Um, just following up on that, um, at the beginning you also talked about how women, if, you know, if they don't do something big, if, it, if they're not very loud, they often won't be covered as yeah. much in the media. So if you want to be a back. politician, what, like, as a woman, what do you recommend? I mean, that's telling one of my articles, you know. You're damned if you engage in that sort of, you know, aggressive, assertive behavior because that gets focused on and, and then you get these stereotypes that come up. But if you don't, then you're not getting coverage. And a really interesting example was the 1997 Canadian leadership debate 
uh, one woman leading the New Democratic Party, minor party, but was still part of the debate. Five candidates in total, debate going on, the report come, came afterwards. Uh, Craig Oliver, who was a leading uh, journalist with the CTV, discussing the debate, framed it all, and this goes back to my metaphors, framed it all as a hockey match. They, there were shots on net, mm -hmm. no one scored a goal, they got off the ice battered and bruised. Not once in that whole discussion did he refer to um, Alexa McDonough, who was the female candidate. She was completely excluded from this you know, whole discussion of the debate. All the male candidates were. They, were all, they could all be hockey players. She wasn't. She was off. She hadn't sort of been as assertive enough to, to get the, the media attention in that case. So a really interesting example of how that sort of metaphoric language, that masculine narrative can really limit women, particularly if they're not uh, engaged. How do you do it? Well, maybe the answer is to do it, but not in a, uh, you know, be careful about how you present yourself. Uh, be, be conscious of, of the impact that that president self-presentation can have. And I think actually women are, in politics, typically are quite conscious. You know, they know uh, the response that they're going to get. They're aware of, you know, how they hold themselves. They're aware of the clothes that they wear. They wear, I mean, if they're good and they have good advice, those sorts of things come out. In immediate uh, debate training and things like that, um, often this is information. But I think, it, I think it's really interesting stuff that may not, I haven't seen it, you know, presented someplace else, uh, results that potentially may help women going forward. So, yeah. Um, what do you think of, of uh, George Bush? Think of someone who built personal relationships with the journalists. Mm -hmm. And certainly that has to be something that can help mm. individuals. Mm. Sure. Yeah. And again, though, I, I mean, we're talking about women at quite elite power uh, levels here. I mean, most candidates, women candidates, aren't running for president of the United yeah. States or prime minister of Canada. They're running for mayor or, you know, state legislature or things like that. And, and those are the women I'm most concerned about because those are the ones where this media gender mediation stuff might actually have the most impact on. You know, when you start going for high level office, there's a lot of coverage of you. You know, and so people have more information. They're not just going to use that little clip to determine who you are and what you stand for. They'll have a lot of information. And the more information they have, the less likely they're going to use these heuristics. But it's when there's not a lot of information out there that this, this gender mediation is most likely to be a problem, that we rely on heuristics more. And uh, you know, so therefore, what gets shown is going to be more of an issue. And I think most female politicians are going to be in that camp as opposed to the few who are really interesting but are in the more elite levels. Really interesting. Well, maybe it's also calls for more retail politics. <laughs> yeah. Well, terrific. And that was really thank you for a very stimulating conversation. Um, I think that um, your question should be our agenda as scholars. Got to move beyond the damned if you do, damned if you don't. We got to start working harder on on what uh, where do we where do we go from there? It's a great and very important question. So. Um, Hope you'll join us next week for uh, Victoria Breskel from Yale School of Management is going to be talking about women in power, um, hard to earn, difficult to signal, easy to lose. Mm -hmm. More of the same. <laughs> more of the same. More of the same. All right. Thank you.